We have to move spirituality from the church and the yoga class and move it into the world where we're using spiritual tools to relieve the suffering of others, to increase compassion and build community. From Interfaith Alliance, this is The State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in New York City. We're in the last hours of 2023 and we're doing our best to set the right tone for the new year. On this episode of The State of Belief, you can expect to be entertained and inspired as I talk with the Emmy-nominated actor and best-selling author, Rain Wilson. A lot of people know him as the comedic star of the hit series, The Office, as well as a whole lot of movies, including The Rocker and Super. But Rain is also a deeply thinking person who's authored books like Soul Pancake, Chew on Life's Big Questions, and more recently, Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. I really think you're going to get a lot out of this conversation. We are growing the state of belief, building on our 18-year history by partnering with Religion News Service. And as part of the RNS family of podcasts, there's a next generation, the State of Belief podcast that I want to make sure you're subscribed to. Please visit stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. It would really help us to have you subscribe, rate, and tell people you're close to about all that you are hearing. The State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show going is available at stateofbelief.com, and you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. I'm Roxy Stone. And I'm Caitlin Beatty. Saved by the City is a podcast from two Christian women cracking the code of faith from the mean streets of New York City. Our podcast captures what happens when purity culture meets hookup culture, when distraction steals from devotion, and when the diversity of viewpoints and lifestyles clash against assumptions. Gotham can be a weird place for Christian women, but we're out there and we have stories to tell. Saved by the City, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening. And now to my guest. Rain Wilson has a long list of film and TV credits to his name, dating back to 1997. With multiple Emmy nominations for his role as Dwight on the comedy series The Office, that would already be quite a record of achievement. But Rain has also built an enormous following for his work in spirituality and community building. And he's the best-selling author of books including Soul Pancake, Chew on Life's Big Questions, and most recently, Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. And he also has a series on Peacock called The Geography of Bliss. And there's more. He's going to be starting a podcast based on Soul Boom. So this is the man we want to speak right now as we move into the new year and think about 2012 and what we really need as individuals, but also as a collective people to move in well into this new season. So welcome, Rain. We're so glad to have you. Paul, I love it. That's the greatest introduction I've ever gotten. Thank you for having me. But there's one small correction. Okay. And you are showing your age because you said as we head into 2012. Did I and say that? We had Lord. it in 2012, a super long time ago, so long ago. I'm still back in 2012. How dare you? I you wish I was in my delusion. <laughs> the world was oh a little God. saner in 2012. I, it sure seemed like it, but you know what? Here we are, and we're going to do with this what we can do with it. So thank you for the correction. And we are in, yes, we are We are moving into 2023. Four and Indeed. just and not much happening in 2024. No need no. for a no need for a spiritual revolution in 2024. No, not everything's pretty. Everything's pretty good. Listen, I want to say something to the at the outset to you, which you're probably going to have a hard time hearing, but I I think it's important for me as someone who's been doing religion for 30 years as a minister in America to say to you that there are few people in America who have done more for spirituality for our country than you have. 
And wow. I just want you to, I want you to accept that. And, and, and for me to share my thanks for what you've done and the work you've put in, not just on yourself, because clearly you've done a lot of work on yourself, but you've invited other people into that kind of work. And I just want to start with that note of gratitude as we, again, hit 2024 is to go in with a feeling of gratitude for yeah. your work. And also, you know, this idea that we can take a moment and say, okay, you know what? I've done something good in the world. <laughs> and I um, want you to feel that. I want you to really feel that. I appreciate that, Paul. I really do. Thank you for the kind words. And I just, you know, early on in the book in Soul Boom, I talk about these two TV shows that were very seminal in my personal development, and that is I, uh, Kung I Fu. I love it. Yes. Yeah. Kung, yeah. I, yeah. 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 Kung and... Fu and Star Trek and Star Trek. And and the reason I bring them up, and I don't have to get into the whole shebang right now, but you know what you're saying really sparked something. It sparked me going back to that section of the book because I think that. Um, the idea of a spiritual revolution uh, reveals to me that there are there are two paths of spirituality, and in contemporary America, we all almost always only think of the one, which is the kung fu path. And the parallel that I draw to kung fu is that it's about this Chinese monk who's wandering the racist old west, and he's trying to develop his spiritual capacities, and he's on this journey, and he's you know seeking to be to share his Eastern wisdom. And that's, and that's what I compare to like the personal spiritual journey that we're all on that, you know, we meditate, we pray, we're in a contemplative practice. We, um, we read the holy texts. We try and become more patient and more kind as we go through life um, and uh, uh, live more in gratitude and appreciate beauty, et cetera. And that's the personal spiritual path. But what the book, also addresses is this why we need a spiritual revolution and this is why i to me it, it's such a passion project of mine um that you mentioned kind of in, in your introduction because i feel like these spiritual tools are what the world needs right now more than anything and we have to move spirituality from the church and the yoga class and move it into the world where we're using spiritual tools to relieve the suffering of others to increase yeah. compassion and build community. Because this is also what a spiritual practice and religion has done over the centuries. But we oh. often forget that kind of Star Trek side of religion, which is community building and allowing humanity to progress uh, through time, mature and grow. Yeah, thank you so much. I think that that's really important. Uh, and, you know, in my own life, I have, um, I have sometimes more emphasized the personal and then sometimes kind of almost forgotten about the personal as I look mm. into like, uh, you know, we need to, you know, we need social change. We need justice, yeah. you know, and and I think that the most healthy way to imagine going forward for all of us is to take these tools use them in our personal spiritual lives to make us awake and able, but also not to forget that, you know, we need to also be out in the world. And that's, you know, it, just Interfaith Alliance, as listeners know, that's a lot of our, what we get out there and do is that we really try to make sure that the world is actually safe and offers dignity and respect for all people. And so I really love this. You and I are, I think you're a little bit younger, but we're mostly the same age. And so yeah. like those two shows were very present for me. And, oh, nice. uh, and I love that part of the book. Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. It's very accessible. And I wouldn't say self-deprecating, but slightly like self-effacing you know, effacing humor. You allow people to say, okay, I, he doesn't have all the answers. He's not preaching at us. He's inviting us into a process. But I want to start just a little bit um, backing up. You are a Baha'i, and it's not mm -hmm. a overwhelmingly known religion, but it does inform, like, because it's part of your story. 
And it's really important, you know, I didn't realize you were actually raised in a Baha'i family. Like many, mm-hmm. we have many Baha'i converts, but you, that's really part of your DNA. And so maybe telling our listeners a little bit who may be unfamiliar what, with what Baha'i is, um, because you do get into a little bit of your history in Soul Boom, and you use it as a great opportunity to introduce one of the important religious traditions in the world. Oh, thank you. Yeah. In it's uh it was a it was quite a story growing up in suburban Seattle being kind of this nerdy kid. I was into chess and I played the bassoon and I was in marching band and model United Nations and So you and were the coolest kind of, kid. You were the coolest oh, sure. kid is what oh, you're saying. Sure. Um, <laughs> but kind of pimply and gangly and uncoordinated and at the same time I was a Baha'i. So Nothing will alienate you more from a working class Seattle school district than uh, than that. But yeah, I, my parents became Baha'is in the early and mid 60s. That's uh, was the kind of the beginning of a big movement, as you know, in the kind of counterculture movement. There was also a great spiritual search movement going on at the same time. And uh, the Baha'i faith had tens of thousands of uh, converts and enrollments around that time in the sixties and early mid seventies. And, uh, my parents, so I grew up in a Baha'i home and it was really, it was pretty special. You know, the Baha'i community at that time was very diverse. There was, you know, I didn't see any African Americans or native Americans in my neighborhood in suburban Seattle, but I sure did when I would go to, uh, Baha'i, um, meetings and gatherings in Seattle or in the Pacific Northwest. There was Native American Baha'i choirs and there were Chinese Baha'is and Hispanic Baha'is and um, uh, all kinds of different colors. And I mean, in part, in part, that's because that's a, a really important principle for the Baha'i yeah. faith is that yeah, kind of diversity. Elim- that's like, exactly. Yeah. Diverse, unity and diversity and elimination of racial prejudice yeah. is kind of a spiritual foundation of the Baha'i faith. So right. bringing people together and eliminating division. And, right. and you know, we sang songs and it was the 70s and we cleaned up parks and we, you know, we prayed and meditated and it was really uh, amazing. I learned lots of great, really super progressive Baha'i ideas about equality of women and men, about how right. science and religion are in harmony. And so, but then I left the faith hardcore um, in my 20s when, you know, like a lot of young people do, I went to New York City to go become an actor. And the last thing I wanted in my life was, you know, uh, morality and God and spirituality and the soul and all of that nonsense. You had a great line in the book where you say, I wore atheism like a jaunty cap, which was really great yeah. writing. You know, I mean, you just like, you know, I could, you could see it, you know, almost like, look, you know, like I'm not, yep. I, I may not have my beret on, but I <laughs> I have this. Yeah. Yeah. There yeah. was, there was yeah. a couple years there where I, where I was, where I was an atheist and, you know, I, I often quote uh, the great Julia Cameron, uh, author of The Artist's Way, who said, I came to spirituality not out of virtue, but out of necessity. Yeah. And, yeah. and, I, and I write about this a little bit in Soul Boom and more in The Bassoon King about um, uh, how I went through a real mental health crisis right. uh, of great uh, anguish and angst, anxiety attacks, uh, depression, addiction. Uh, like a lot of people do in their 20s. And it was kind of re-exploring a spiritual path that brought me back to the Baha'i faith, but also brought me back to a spiritual way of seeing the world. And that's what I want to share with people. You know, I'm, and I'm not, I'm not a monk. I'm not a guru. I'm not a psychologist. I don't have any answers. I have a few little spots of wisdom here and there, but I'm just a big, weird, chump going on a spiritual journey and <laughs> i want to have conversations with people about yeah. uh, about spirituality and and how it can enrich our lives well and and that's it's just really important i mean you know we uh I, we share that in that uh part of the you know the reason i'm a minister today is i went through in new york city or well in new york city and other cities uh you know uh, uh my own journey of addiction and recovery and and you know it was like it, it i was still a freak 
but I was like a freak with different prior, like different questions. And, you know, and, okay. uh, and, I, you know, and I enjoyed like, you know, I, I really, I was, I became on a search and, uh, and mm. realized that I, I needed other people and I needed, I, I needed, um, community and I needed spirituality. And so, mm. you know, it's, mm. it's, it's a, it's a great, um, you know, it's a great part of your story. I think what's interesting is in this book, in, in Soul Boom, um, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution, you kind of go through different sections. And maybe, you know, one of the one of the moments, it's 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 connected to your Baha'i story, but it's not about necessarily the Baha'i story, is a moment you talk about when you went on a pilgrimage to a sacred site in the Baha'i faith and about mm-hmm. how you felt when you mm-hmm. went in. And such a beautiful telling. And again, I urge our listeners to to check out this book because it's it's like it it offers some language and spiritual memoir. Like you're not just there at blissfully Zen. You're like also like you know my butt hurts and all this kind of stuff. But then when you come out, <laughs> you, you, when you come out, you know you're also like it's like things have been washed away and you're seeing yeah. something new. Talk about that part of the book, which is about pilgrimage. Yeah, it's. Um... It's interesting. Pilgrimage is a part of every faith tradition in some way, shape, or form. And I think it exists for a number of reasons, uh, not the least of which is to take a period of time outside of from the daily life where you're going on a journey that is both external and internal to kind of reconnect with what is holy and what is sacred. So in the Baha'i faith, there is a formal pilgrimage, which is you go to the Baha'i Holy Land in the north of Israel, in the Haifa area, Akka, in that area, and that is where the prophet founder, Baha'u'llah, was buried. Um, and his shrine is the most sacred place for the Baha'is of the world. Of all six, seven million Baha'is around the world, that's where they turn and face in their prayer, um, in their daily prayer. and. There's also the administrative buildings of the Baha'i faith are there in northern Israel. And um, a lot of history of the Baha'i faith was there, you know, as the founders of the faith lived there and worked there and had homes. And here's where they lived for this period of time. And here's where they got their falafel or, and or whatever. Beautiful gardens. I mean, this is one of the famous, famous, mm-hmm. like, you know, uh, spots in, in the world is the gardens in Haifa. The Baha'i yeah, the gardens, gardens they're yeah, extraordinary, yeah. extraordinary. So I have been a couple of times, but the last time I went on a, on a pilgrimage, it was really um, uh, revelatory. It was beautiful. It was special and uh, moving and you're taking in the baha'i case like nine days where you're centering your spiritual experience and your connection to your history to your roots and coming out of it and coming back was also really eye-opening because i was like why why was this so special and why is my daily life so fraught with you know, emails and texts and getting stuck in traffic and the line at Starbucks is too long. How can I bring some of that holiness and sacredness into my daily life? So I just, I don't have any answers around that. I pose a lot of those questions yeah. in that chapter. Yeah. And well, I, so, I, what I liked about that at the end of the chapter, you really, add, you invite the reader, um, you know, you said like, what is, what is holy to you? Uh, where does sacredness live? You know, I mean, you ask Mm. a series of really great questions that invite people um, to consider like what pilgrimage can mean to them. And, and, Mm. uh, and I, I'll just say as an aside, I love that it starts out like with someone saying, Oh, you have to go to Lambeau field. And I'm from Wisconsin. I grew up in Madison. Okay. So, (laughs) and and like, you know, I, you know, with Packardom all over me. And so Lambeau field is like, ah, you know, (laughs) but then you ask the question, so what does it mean? And what can, you know, what can be a pilgrimage? And what, this is another example in the book about how you, um, how you invite people into, you know, individual but also collective, like, uh, and, don't, and don't you th- and don't you think, Paul, like the world could be made such a uh, more rich place, and living could be such a more profound experience if we had a sacred and holy journeys and spaces and experiences as part of our daily life, and mm-hmm. and I mean collectively, culturally, if this was part of our of our conversation. Yeah. I, I think that so much of the 
the tension and, and anguish and contention that exists in the world right now could be assuaged by sharing kind of holy journeys and sacred spaces. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think one of the obstacles to that is there are people who are very intent on dictating to others what is the one spiritual yeah. pilgrimage that you should be on and the one mm. uh, and exclusive and uh, uh, way to to do this at uh, which yeah. and, and and try to dictate you know you know we're experiencing this rash of christian nationalism in this country where people are you know trying to create laws just to force everyone to 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 adhere to a certain way of understanding about what has sure. value what is you know and instead what you're offering is like could we have a collective conversation about it which invites yeah. in people who maybe have always felt excluded from that conversation uh, and I'm we gonna, and there's and there's there's hindu nationalism that is yeah. uh targeting the Sikhs, and there's you know uh shiite uh, fundamentalism that's targeting uh, the Baha'is and the Jews in in Iran, and there's all kinds yeah. of uh, yeah. fundamentalism out there no, that is, uh, right. is moving us backwards yeah. around the no, world. No, it's 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 a it's a it's a major problem. Uh, one of my favorite parts, I have to say, <laughs> and this is something that like I've I've you know I, I've heard a little bit, but I haven't heard expounded as well as you did in uh, Soul Boom is this chapter called, Hey Kids, Let's Build the Perfect Religion, which is actually <laughs> a really interesting um, invitation. But you kind of offer a, um, you know, uh, some of the building blocks of religion. Uh, you kind of, in some ways, you, you know, dissect sounds like a, 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 a not the right word, but you, you do like uh, um, imagine what are the blocks that do make up the religion. And then you say, OK, so what would we do if we build a religion um, now? And uh, and talk to me a little bit about why that chapter felt important. Yeah, I think I did it as an experiment. And it's funny because I read some negative reviews online. Sorry, yes, I read my own reviews online. But um, uh, especially comments from folks and they're like, Rain's trying to build a new religion, but we really don't need a new religion. And it's like, no, that's not was not the point at all. There's a hypothetical. No, clearly, that was not the point. You, you had um, to be looking for that if you were like, you know, that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, go on, go on, go on. Yeah. But, but you know what the experiment was, because, you know, I'm kind of targeting this book to a younger audience. I mean, it's for everyone, but I was hoping to reach uh, some younger folks because so often in contemporary society, especially on the in the blue state, coastal states, we have jettisoned anything and everything to do with religion and people recoil at the thought of an organized religion. And I get it. You know, so much evil has been perpetrated in the name of religion, so much shame and judgment. Um, I completely understand. But I say in the book, have we thrown the spiritual baby out with the religious bathwater? Can there be spiritual truth that we have lost by jettisoning religion? So this is a thought experiment to say, hey, it's easy to see the differences in the religions like, oh, Hinduism is polytheistic and Islam worships one God. They're very different. They have nothing to do with each other. That's kind of an easy and simple argument to make. But if you dig deeper and read the holy texts, you realize there are dozens of similarities and what I call universalities about the religious experience. So the part one is I kind of dig through all the faiths and say, here's, here's 10 or 12 things that all faiths hold in common, number one. And then number two, what if we took the best aspects of different religions and made our own religion? We'll call it soul boom, the religion. And the reason I did this was to get young people thinking a little bit different about religion, because it's so easy to just kind of like whole cloth say, I don't want anything to do with anything religion. Right. It's like, and I do believe that we have lost something. Uh, we've lost community, uh, a community of people gathering together for seeking transcendence, service yeah. to others, communal prayer and meditation. Now there's ways to gain this. You can gain it in a, a yoga class or a meditation group or even a like meetup nextdoor.org neighborhood park cleanup or something like that. But um, there was, um, we can certainly see in the current mental health epidemic that 
we've lost something as as much evil as religion has perpetrated we've, we've also lost a lot of very valuable communal uh aspects yeah. to it so and those yeah. are the things i wanted to explore yeah well and i think it's really important and nowhere in the book are you do you sugarcoat um religion the one you know i just want to quibble as a as a reverend myself no clerics Rain, no clerics. I'm joking. No clerics. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that was really interesting. Up next, lots more with actor, producer, and best-selling author Rain Wilson. You can hear full episodes of the State of Belief anytime on our website at stateofbelief.com, and make sure you subscribe to the Next Generation Podcast at stateofbelief.com/newpodcast. That's stateofbelief.com/newpodcast. You're listening to The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. When you hear the word land, what images come to mind? Your local garden, the environment, Mother Earth, 40 acres and a mule. What if I told you that our thoughts about land are rooted in religion? And those religious ideas have transformed American politics. This is Complexified, a podcast for the religiously curious and politically frustrated. In this season of Complexified, we will unearth the different and often unexamined beliefs about land in search of new paths toward a common good. I'm your host, Amanda Henderson, coming to you from the Institute for Religion, Politics, and Culture at Iliff School of Theology and in partnership with Religion News Service. Follow Complexified on your favorite podcast app. I had a, a cousin who's a famous philosopher named um, Dick Rorty, Richard Rorty. He became known as... Um, as kind of the boogeyman for the religious right because he was a secular humanist. And and we got a chance to talk he, in his final uh, months of his life. And, and he said, you know, Paul, I was never as anti-religious. I was just not, I was anti-clerical. And I was like, I get it. You know, that, I yeah. mean, I, so I, I thought that was just, uh, as an aside, I thought that was uh, an important point. Like, who gets to speak? Like, that's the problem in some ways with the, us clerics is we kind of take the mantle of religion and say, okay, I get to tell everybody else what this is, yeah. as opposed to, you know, recognizing actually each individual has the right to, to have their, you know, actually it's, a, you know, a principle of, of the Baptist is soul freedom, but it's not as uh, exercised as much as it could be. So this program is is running just as we're going into 2024. This country, I would say, is in a crisis of mm-hmm. understanding, like, do we belong to each other? You know, mm. how can, you know, how can we um, acknowledge one another in all of our difference and, and not you know, and and really, you know, I'm I've never I've never experienced this sense of I'm not sure we're going to make it before as I am right now. Um, I want to get into your last well, or the almost the last chapter. It's, it's called the Seven Pillars of a Spiritual Revolution, and you know we maybe can't spend as much time on each of them, but I do think it would be help helpful to to list them. And talk about yeah. like why those are the seven pillars, just so that we have those in mind um, as we think about the new year and, and maybe something about what we want to bring into 2024 uh, in order to uh, to hopefully make it a good year. Yeah, thanks for highlighting that. You know, I wasn't going to write that chapter. I had finished the book and the last chapter, the chapter right before that is like the called the broken blue marble. And it's kind of like everything that's kind of wrong in the world today, you know, from, you know, political dissension and conflict to war, militarism, materialism, you know, the list goes on and on, social injustices, etc. And um, and I was like, rain, come on. You can't end the book on that. <laughs> Such a downer. Like, and also like, you got to have a plan. Like, you've got to offer something. And it's it's easy to kind of criticize. And um, in fact, that's one of the seven pillars: is don't just protest, build something. Because in the age of social media, especially, 
uh, so many people are keyboard warriors and their entire work is just protesting online and saying, hey, that's wrong, that's unjust, that's racist, this is corrupt, and both on the political right and the political left, and that's all they do. And then they go to their jobs and they go home and they watch TV. So don't just protest. Um, and even protesting, it's easy to just go out for a couple hours with a sign. That's easy. How do you build something? How do you build coalition? How do you bring people together? How do you build an organization at the grassroots? It's really friggin' hard, yeah. but that's where the real change happens. And it doesn't yeah. need to me doesn't mean that you need to build a giant international movement. Uh, it you can start with your cul-de-sac, you can start with your church, you can start right. with your your local school or your place of work or your family even. Yeah. Um, but yeah. building at the grassroots. Right. Uh, and actually making something is is a key part of one of these seven pillars. That was two of them because don't just protest, build something and it's grassroots baby. So thinking about building at the grassroots. Um, I talk about uh, uh, virtues education. This is something that I have found to be very powerful uh, in the work that I've done. And it's something that's ignored in the schools and oftentimes it's ignored in families, which is training kids about the great, deep, brilliant, wise spiritual virtues that all the great spiritual leaders from Jesus Christ to Lord Krishna to the Buddha have exemplified to Martin Luther King to, you know, to Nelson Mandela to so many great kind of thought and social leaders. Um, but educating children in kindness, compassion, humility, um, they don't just learn that, right? And mm -hmm. there are really interesting ways to train children and youth. Um, and if you if you have a problem with God or the idea of like spiritual virtues, you can call it leadership qualities and character, positive character traits. Yeah. No, I, I, I actually no. This is so again back to my 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 kids in school are. Um, they go to a public school and they and the public school is guided by they call it K K G and G kindness gentleness and gratitude and mm. the, and everything is kind of filtered through that so at every oh, that's every great. It, it's really amazing and it's something i had never heard of and the first time i heard of it i was like what what are we doing over there and then and then when i started going to the um the the public events that they had and all of the stuff they they mentioned it at the beginning of every one of them and you could see like the kids were hearing this over and over again and it really made a difference and my kids can talk about it and they will talk about it and they're like is that mm. kind is that gentle it's very it's actually so it's the it's proof of concept there in that it really has changed the way they understand their education as as leading into something that these virtues as as a as an important guiding light so i just think it's really important what you're saying yeah oh that's great and i i have uh and here's a here's a doozy but it's reinvent adversarial systems so the way that contemporary America is set up and Western culture is set up, um, we're so consumerist and capitalistic that uh, everything is a race to the top. All systems, all systems, think of a system and it's set up in terms of competition, each man for himself, one-upsmanship, dog eat dog, every, you know, uh, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, however you want to call it, where, you know, survival of the fittest, from healthcare to education to transportation to agriculture to you know world trade everything is based on these adversarial systems certainly our political system don't get me started so we have to start realizing this noticing how adversarial these systems are and reconfiguring systems to be ones based uh, more on spiritual principles which would be collaboration cooperation and community building and that's that's a lot that's a long hard work but there are people doing that work there are people you know building coalitions and saying hey let's forget you know this kind of competition every man for himself kind of modus operandi and let's 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 shift our focus so that that's another one yeah. Yeah. Just on that, I just think, you know, I mean, so I, in my background that my grandparents started the 
they they wrote the first unemployment compensation bill that was later used for the whole country. And part of their strategy was to invite labor and business owners to talk to one another about why it would be better for both of them in mm. order to have some sort of way of, of, of mitigating against unemployment, you know, and mm. And in the end, they got buy-in, and it and it was hard, and it took a lot of and that. But in the end, it was better for both of them, and that's why the the laws stuck, and that's why mm. it, it was in the end, it was a it was a um, it made a permanent change in the first in Wisconsin, and then in our national laws. So it's an example of not one didn't have to triumph over the other to, and uh, it was a way that actually uh, businesses could run better. Better and 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 uh, workers could actually have consistent uh, employment, and so there there are ways that, yeah. that you know, and there are models that this can be done out there um, if we yeah. if we're if we're willing to take the time with one another. Uh, I, and by the way, I'm so grateful for their work on that because as a struggling actor in New York City, getting those unemployment checks in between theater acting gigs saved my life no but that and was exactly it people you know in, in you know before these bills people would get like two weeks of work and then they'd be out of work for a month and they couldn't feed their families and right. uh, and then another people in Wisconsin you'll pre, you know another person who came into the conversation were the dairy farmers who said we need people to buy our milk and if they're unemployment they don't ha- employed they don't have money to buy our milk so it's kind of like a, right. a virtuous circle a virtuous nice. circle you understand you know and the, and you know the, the, actually the washington post did a big article about my grandparents uh, during the pandemic when when wow. millions and millions and millions of people had to go on unemployment and they were yeah. like well, how did this start and then they got they so you know it's it's a great story of like having a good idea and and inviting people into it. Anyway, enough about that. But I just wanted to give a case in point of what you're talking about. Well, and then that leads to another one of the seven pillars, which uh, has to do with uh, reinventing, a, rein, uh, recreating a mythology for humanity. Because the, mm-hmm. the current mythology that has fostered this idea of adversarialist systems is that humans will always stab each other in the back, that we're naturally competitive, we're warlike, we're gonna claw our way to the top, we're just filled with self-interest. And and that's just how we're wired and that is never gonna change. We're warlike and we're aggressive and, um, uh, and we need to recreate that mythology. And that's what a lot of the great spiritual teachers and thinkers always are pointing at is, hey, we're also cooperative and we're also kind and we're also collaborative mm. and we have also tribes have not just thrived from conquering other tribes but many tribes thrived by finding ways to to cooperate with other tribes to to build coalitions to work together and hu- humans have needed each other throughout time for every war site that's out there in, in an archeological excavation, there's an area of like, oh, they had wonderful trade with the Phoenicians and with the right, Egyptians right. Or, or, or what have you. And, and they, they flourished because of their ability to, to trade, to communicate, to embrace differences. And this is part of our human story too but we always hear about the other part of the human story. That's right. And, That's right. And, and then, so if you talk about world peace, people roll their eyes and they're like, ah, that'll never happen. We're always gonna try and rip each other's eyes out and blow each other up. It's like, well, we do have that aspect as human beings, but we also have a higher aspect. And that brings me to the final point um, uh, and my favorite, which is that I think part of our work uh, as people working in the spirituality field, Paul, is to squash cynicism and foster joy. Mm. We, Mm. um, uh, perhaps our greatest work is to give people hope. And Mm. uh, it's easy to tear things down, it's easy to criticize, but to to inspire and and bring people together. And I have a little story that I shared in that section, um, which is I was studying with the great acting teacher, Andre Gregory, and in New York City back when I was a theater actor, a broke theater actor, and getting unemployment. And <laughs> uh, I met with him in his house because he would meet with his acting students. And he said, so 
Rain, how you doing? And I was like, oh, Andre, I'm just depressed and the world is, is, is shit and everyone, things are so bad and oh my gosh, it just couldn't get any worse and I'm just depressed at how things are going, blah, 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 blah. And I'll never forget this. He reached out and he grabbed my arm hard and he was like, don't, don't do it. You can't go there. If you're cynical, they win. If you're pessimistic, they win. Those forces out there of darkness, of negativity, they want you to be pessimistic. Because if you're pessimistic, you're going to sit on your couch and you're not going to do anything. So don't do it. You've got to foster hope. You've got to give people joy. You've got to work for positive outcomes and don't succumb to cynicism and pessimism. And he's like, now get out of here. And he like <laughs> launched me out of his apartment and I stumbled out and I'll never forget that yeah. interaction. And wow. he's a hundred percent right. So it's super easy in these dark, dark times for our hearts to become hardened and jaded yes. and for us to kind of like pull back from the work, but yeah. part of our work is to inspire and build and bring people together and do whatever we yeah. can to make the world a better place. And that doesn't have to be on a global scale. It can, again, it can be no. at your church or your yeah. cul-de-sac or your place of business. Yeah, I think that's so important. And I and I will say, like you know, for me growing up, you know, we we talked about TV shows, but theater, music, pop culture, you know, it was one way of. It was one way of feeling less alone and feeling like, okay, there's stories out there that, that, you know, that involve me, that invite me. I, I'm curious how you connect this spiritual work with the, the discipline and the craft of, of acting and theater. Like, what, where, where are the intersections for you? Well, that's a great question. Thanks for asking it. Um, I love that question because I struggled with this for a long time. I was, as I was getting more into spirituality, I was like, well, why am I an actor? Shouldn't I just be digging wells in Malawi? You know, what, uh, what, what's, what, what, what does this mean? And, and, and especially when I was on TV shows, I'm like, why am I a TV actor? And it works on a number of different levels. Number one is God loves people that have developed their talents and faculties. Whether you're a musician, whether you're a podcast host, a minister, a school teacher, a tugboat captain, it doesn't matter what you do. God loves us all to take those divine, beautiful human qualities that we have inherent in us and develop them, to dig in the minds of our potential and possibility. And that is a divine act. The creation of art from a Baha'i perspective is the same as worship. So writing a poem, singing a song, uh, putting on a play, a dance, whatever it is, is an expression of that divine transcendence. Mm -hmm. And of it's also a great service. Think about how great, beautiful paintings have have brought solace to the eyes of, of millions of viewers and how music transports the soul and how much we love stories. We're natural storytellers. And right. part of being an actor is being a storyteller. So humans need stories. And I have heard from hundreds and hundreds of people, like how much the office has meant to them, how much that show has, you know, you know, picked them up when they were down or brought their family together or gotten th them through a hard time. So, um, I think that uh, there's really no difference between the making of art and the worshiping of God. And there's also perfecting our craft, perfecting yeah. the arts and sciences and, and, and business um, is, uh, helps elevate uh, all things in the world. Yeah. I, you know, I, I was never an actor, like a uh, professional actor, but I did use theater in like kind of, there was something like a, a theater movement called Theater of the Oppressed and, um, and, you know, mm -hmm. using theater to tell stories and Augusto Boal. Yeah, Augusto Boal, exactly. And yeah, so as I yeah. was like connecting that with like Paulo Freire, who was like a, you know, a, a, a revolutionary in the art of education and then, and then some of the, um, you know, the, the kind of, 
theological liberation movements. They were all at the same time in the late 60s. And so I, I was really investigating the intersection between those. And I also found that when I was doing that kind of theater, I was often... Um, cast or even chose really nefarious characters um, because because and there was something about like creating empathy for that position and being like and, and and trying to understand what would be like what would be my motivation you know like to 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 be so terrible and in some ways like I, I think theater also like when when it, when we have three-dimensional characters we are allowed to see um, other parts of humanity rather than just you know the, they're the bad guy you know and mm-hmm, and even mm-hmm. you know even with Dwight like who's obviously you know, not the uh he, he's not the <laughs> the one everybody loves and wants to spend yeah. have a beer with but you know there's moments where you're like okay i you know he has sensitivities too he's trying his hardest you know sure. I mean, he's like you know and and so i just think that that's another thing that storytelling does in fiction as well you know i mean in writing and all this kind of stuff so we're we're on the same page we, we ask people on this show uh what gives them hope and I'm curious if you'd be willing to to offer us what gives you hope right now. Uh, well, I'll tell you, not a lot. You know, to be really frank, it's a it's a dark time. I think that there are. Um, I bring up in the book uh, there are great forces of disintegration at work in the world right now. There's also great forces of integration. Um, But I will say that I had no idea how people were going to receive this book. Here's this sitcom actor writing a book on spirituality. What the hell? And I worked my butt off on it all through COVID for three years on this book. And but the response to it has been incredible. And people are very, very interested in spiritual solutions to big problems, both on a personal level and on a societal level. And so that gives me hope. And, you know, you you look around and you see coalitions of people working to make the better place. I think the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement um, for its various flaws here and there has been revolutionary uh, and made revolutionary change in America. Have we fixed racism? No. Have we fixed sexism? Of course not. But are things a lot better now than they were six years ago in those regards. I believe they are. Um, I look at Greta Thunberg, um, uh, a little Swedish girl on the autism spectrum who held up a sign in front of Swedish parliament every Friday and started a global movement that has tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of followers, Mm -hmm. just from um, her wanting to make a small change. and got the support of her parents. There are there are movements that are pushing us in the right direction, and it can be very overwhelming. And I I tell young people like find the forces of integration around you and adhere to those, l- latch on to those, attach yourself to the groups that are really making the world a better place. Whatever it is you're passionate about, it can be the environment, it could be animal rights, human rights, it can be you know, race issues, injustices, you know, income inequality, whatever it is, find the groups that are um, making an impact and and get behind them and put your focus there because it's so easy to focus on the negative. Mm. Yeah, thank you so much. And now, you know, I'm not sure if you're going to be up for this, but you did say that you're like a, a prayer, a meditator, a things like that. And Mm-hmm. I would we're we're you know we're about to go into a very difficult year and I'm just wondering if you would share a meditation a prayer or anything that feels like it's on your heart uh with our listeners so that uh, hopefully we can go in with a, a a possibility mindset um of an integration mindset so would you be willing to do that to to say a prayer yeah. Yeah, sure. Of course. I would love to. What I'd like to share is a prayer that Baha'is say every day. I, I mentioned this earlier that Baha'is turn toward our Mecca, which is uh, Akka, Haifa, Northern Israel, 
where Baha'u'llah is buried. And we just do that to kind of attune our hearts. To, we're not like worshiping the dead body of someone. It's just attuning our hearts to a place that is, that is sacred and meaningful to us. And um, the incredible message that Baha'u'llah brought to humanity in the, you know, in the 19th century. And, um, but Baha'is every day say this prayer. So six or seven million Baha'is are saying this prayer, even as we're having this conversation. It's very short, it's very simple, it's three sentences long. It goes like this, it says, I bear witness, O my God, that thou hast created me to know thee and to worship thee. I testify at this moment to my powerlessness and to thy might, to my poverty and to thy wealth, that there is none other God but thee, the help in peril, the self-subsisting. So I love this prayer because it focuses me on the meaning of life. Hmm. Thou hast created me to know thee and to worship thee. So we're, we're created to know and worship God. Whatever that means, whatever your faith tradition, whatever your kind of vision is of the unknowable essence, the creative force the, of the universe. And if I can live in harmony with knowing and worshiping God on my, uh, you know, one day at a time, then my life just becomes a hell of a lot better. Mm -hmm. Brain Wilson is an Emmy-nominated actor, a best-selling author, and a spirit-inspired community builder. His latest book is titled Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. Rain, it's an honor to have you with us. I know that Baha'i New Year isn't until March 21st, but I still want to wish you a very happy New Year, and thanks so much for being with us on The State of Belief. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Paul. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. This is a great and fun conversation. Thanks. And that's all the time we have for The State of Belief this week. Be sure to subscribe to The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. We need your help to keep making The State of Belief. Become a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And if you're getting something out of the show, and I assume you are, share it with the people in your networks. Let's get more people listening and keep these conversations going on Facebook and Instagram at State of Belief. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I'll be in conversation with Congressman Don Beyer of Virginia, who's been a leading voice for anti-hate and religious freedom legislation since taking office in 2015. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch on The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. 